Whereas AI could be used to create an efficient model, simulate and synthesize that particular information, and then continually run attacks on its own network to maintain its health and then patch those in real time. As an IT leader responsible for service reliability, you know how critical it is to maintain uptime and responsiveness. Protecting and growing your business's reputation depends on it. IT leaders like us know that when we find what works, everything just flows. In this podcast, we'll explore the possibilities of service reliability today and tomorrow and hear from those driving innovation and consistent performance. I'm Sean McDermott, founder and CEO of Winward Consulting Group. Welcome to Find Flow. Before the episode gets started, we've created a gift for you. It's a short guide called Nine Ways to Accelerate Your Service Reliability Strategy. As a leader in IT, doing everything you can to contribute to business performance, this is the perfect start to optimize your service availability. You can get it now over at windward.com. That's W-I-N-D-W-A-R-D.com. Welcome, everybody, to the Fine Flow Podcast. I'm your host, Sean McDermott. And today, we have Jim Hancock with us. Uh, Jim is an all-around AI guy, so we're going to kind of continue the conversation from our last podcast around AI. I think we're going to get a little more technical today with Jim. We'll talk about all kinds of things around DevSecOps and cybersecurity and things like that. Jim's got a super interesting background. So, Jim, I will let you introduce yourself because you your background and your myriad of degrees and experience. Sure. It's nice to be here. My name is, uh, yeah, like you said, Jim Hancock, J.L. Hancock. Uh, I spent 20 years in the military as a cryptologist uh, specializing in uh, Asian analysis, uh, like in North Korea and South Korea and Japan and whatnot. And then I eventually ended up working with the special operations, specifically the SEAL teams, and ended up as uh, doing over about 100 combat operations with the SEAL teams. And then um, as a cryptologist, not as a SEAL, and I ended up as the head of innovation running uh, over 40 projects and about a $400 million worth of effort, um, ranging in everything from autonomous robotics, artificial intelligence for um, analysis, as well as things in like 5G. Wow. Pretty, pretty interesting background. We don't get a lot of uh, former military people on our podcast, so thank you for your service and sound, sounds pretty exciting. So uh, I, while I'd love to like have a whole conversation about all your combat operations <laughs> that you probably couldn't talk about anyways, um, <laughs> what we're going to talk about today is, you know, kind of AI in, in a little bit more technical sense. So so I know you spent a fair amount of time in the DevSecOps space and you've got all kinds of interesting ideas around AI. So when you think about DevSecOps and the introduction of AI, so in our last podcast, we were actually were we kind of talked at a high level about AI and some of the some of the um, pitfalls you can you know some of the positives and the pitfalls of deploying AI. And one comment I made is like AI is just it's coming whether you want it or not because a lot of vendors that you you purchase products from are embedding AI into their products and things like that. It's coming, and you need to kind of understand it. So in the DevSecOps space, like. Give me your thoughts on applicability of AI in that space and good things about it and some of the challenges that you've seen. Sure. There's two, well, there's two sides to that conversation that I think would are important to point out. One is a uh, sufficient DevSecOps pipeline for um, sustaining and maintaining AI inside of whatever ecosystem it is that you have. 
And then there is the element of employing it and, manip- and using it on the edge and or for end users, whether however they're going to be using it. Most of the time, people don't have the proper infrastructure when it comes to the databases and the modeling that goes into creating a machine learning algorithm, let alone employ, uh, employing the particular tactics that come with it in order to make it useful for whatever tool it is you're trying to create. And that was a big issue that we ran into, um, especially on the government side, because a lot of our networks aren't very well uh, established for maintaining that, especially when it comes to dealing with things of different levels of security or classification. Yeah, we noticed that. I mean, we do a fair amount of federal work, right? And um, and DOD work, and there's different levels. So, so for people who don't know, there's level, different levels of classification inside the inside of um, Department of Defense you know, unclassified and secret and top secret areas and you know, these enclaves that exist. And it's, um, it's difficult, I think, by design, right, to be able to traverse those enclaves um, because there's sensitive data there, right? And uh, which makes, like what you said, you know, the DevSecOps pipelines pretty hard to manage, right? Right. Yeah. Especially when you, it, it gets even more complicated, surprisingly, when you're dealing with information that's not even classified. So let's say I'm dealing with a medical database that has like HIPAA information on it for individuals, the personnel and things like that. And then I have another database that has their, like, let's say I've integrated something like a Fitbit tracking type app. And I wanted to connect those two, even though they're both related to health in some way, because of the security related to how they are managed, it's very difficult to get those two things to talk to each other. And even though that would seem like it'd be a no brainer. So where does AI fit into this? So AI in general, AI does not work unless you have access to as much data as possible. So if I have, like I said, in those two different examples, if I'm trying to create the most efficient AI database, I need access to all information that is related to one, the, let's say it's personnel. Let's say I wanted to have all the personnel information that I possibly get access to. I need it. I know I need it constantly populating. I don't need it like just general information about their administrative statistics. I want their their heart rate and their O2 levels and things like that all the time, let's say, for example. But I have one database that manages it and another database that just has the administrative data. And I want to combine those two things. If I don't have a way for my database to access a way to access all those that data at once, I can't create a sufficient model that can build off a statistical, like really apply the statistics associated with that to employ any type of machine learning algorithm. It just won't work as best as it can. Because really, AI is about data. It's not a, the the examples that people are using nowadays with, with generative AI. If you look at the size of their databases, it's like 45 terabytes of data or petabytes of data. It's massive amounts of information. But if they, let's say, for example, you had all that information, but they were all in different databases and they didn't connect to each other, your AI is going to be insufficient because it can't create a, a strong enough model. And so that's a critical part with DevSecOps is you need to be able to aggregate information effectively and, and annotate it well. We see that in our business. You've got multiple data sources. And so when you think about a CMDB and the amount of information in the CMDB and that the information you know, should be changing dynamically, right? Because your infrastructure can be changing dynamically, especially in, in the cloud. Then you've got all this monitoring data coming in from you know, sources like Splunk and other, uh, other products that are just kicking off and, and throwing out so much data that you know, you, you got to be able to consume that data. And that's where we see like a really good use case in cybersecurity, right? Around, 
getting access to those data data sets and then being able to um, do the the pattern matching and, and pattern prediction and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That 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 whatever pattern tool you're using, whether it be something like a k-means algorithm that identifies outliers or using um, random forest or all these different things that help you identify and create predictions based upon that informa- that model, those information it has to be able to pull from the databases at all times. And it has to be able to do so without it um, degrading your overall capability. And if you have those things and they don't connect well and you can't update and you can't patch effectively, then you're not implementing a, a, a good DevSecOps pipeline. And within the military, that was a big problem because like we mentioned before, when you have different classified networks, they don't talk to each other, period they're not allowed to there's like certain period elements where there's a bridge where you can push information up and make it more sensitive to a more sensitive area but it's very hard to push down because once it goes up people don't like it going back across the network in a different direction however if i have trying to create databases on all the information that i have i need to find a more effective way for those things to go back and forth and the answer that i kept running into no matter what program i was trying to run or capability we're trying to develop it always came back to do we have an, an efficient DevSecOps pipeline and uh, when the answer was no, which it normally was, then it, we spent a bulk of our time discussing policies and processes to fix that. And many of them were bureaucratic. A lot, very rarely was it technological. Yeah, one of the things that we talked about, you know, before this podcast was, you know, cultural shifts um, with AI. And I think that's kind of interesting because you, I think that what we're hearing, you know, a big undertone, right? Not actually not an undertone. I think it's very out there. Is like AI is going to replace humans. And I think in some cases it will, um, you know, every technology, you know, especially technology that's automation will replace a human at some point. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the humans replaced totally. They, they get retrained on other jobs that are created through technology advancements. Um, but you have some interesting ideas on, on cultural shift in, with regards to AI. And I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on that. Uh, yeah. So one of the things that we ran into when it, I think talking about AI in general is is one when it was initially presented to the military, it was always is kind of like um, a buzzword in the sense that people are saying we want AI, but they didn't know what that really meant. So they would so eventually that turned into just one application, which normally was like computer vision. But one thing that we we realized early on is that it's not so much that a human will replace be replaced by AI, is that a human augmented by AI will replace another human. And, and so however we can employ that within our culture is, is more effective. The problem is, is if you have uh, a community of people that are used to using a particular type of tool in a particular way, and your entire training pipeline, institutional pipeline, trains people on that one tool for that use case, and they interact with it in one way, and then you try to dramatically change that by saying, we've now automated the bulk of these other processes, I need you to trust it. Culturally, they're going to have a much harder time accepting that. And there's going to be a, a, a big divide in the military. I think this is the example we were talking about earlier is in the military, you'd have individuals go inside of a building where it's sensitive, right? So there's classified information and they would put their phone outside or in their car because they can't take it in the building. They'd go inside the building and they would use whatever tool it is that they were using. They've been using for a long time or maybe a more recent one that's come out and uh, they'll be happy with what they're accomplishing, even though more efficient tools are available that are augmented by machine learning. Uh, then they'll go back outside and they'll get on their phone and they'll start using the most up-to-date app or whatever it is that they want to play with that is already augmented by AI, by AI, but the interface is simple 
And so there's this massive, strange cultural divide that happens there where people will want to, they don't consider implementing the things they have on their phone inside the building or realize that that's not an option because of the DevSecOps pipeline, and they just shut it down. And I've, I've seen that in actually in certain corporate environments too, where, where the, the company is so used to doing things a certain way that they are not amenable to accepting new capabilities at all because it's easier and cheaper to not do it at all. But it's, it's impacting the bottom line. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting point. We we actually were uh, I, was, I was speaking with a customer just the other day, and we were talking about you know user interfaces, and you know I have the I have the example where I um, I started a software company and I sold it to a pretty large software company, and you know we had we used things like Expedia and Travelocity for booking trips, and it was just so easy. You know, just go on down. You can do it on your phone, do it on your computer. Just you know, search for flights, pick one, and book it. And then I get to this new company and their travel system was like, like literally from like the 1980s. And I I swear it was basically like a mainframe with this, a really bad web page put on the front of it. And, um, it was just awful to use. And, and in the end it actually cost them money because I could find, I would find flights. I'd go to Expedia and try and find a flight, find a flight, then go into their system and try and find it there. And sometimes I couldn't find it, you know, and and the flight would be twice as much, but I was forced into using it. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of a different example in that I ha- I came from a world of, you know, um, very strong user interfaces and utilizing all these commercial products to now being forced into. But I can definitely see that, and we see this too because of the work that we do with you know and with government is that some of these systems are very old and antiquated, and people have been in government for a long time, and they're just resistant to change, you know, and they certainly don't want to hear things like AI, right? Because that you know just connotates like I'm going to be out of a job, right? And so you see passive resistance towards things, you know, or like you said, people just fundamentally just shutting down initiatives that should be moving forward for the betterment well, of the organization and, and the mission. I think an interesting thing about that is, as here's an example, I have a, one of my closest friends growing up is an air traffic controller. And I went in and I sat next to him one time when he was managing traffic. And I was like, what year was this stuff built? And he's like, this is late eighties technology. And, um, the way he was doing everything, I was like, you realize all this can be automated. He's like, well, he's like, no, no, absolutely not. The union would never handle, uh, never, never allow that. Mm. And I was like, what's your biggest problem? He's like, we don't have enough people. And I was like, hang on. So you don't have enough people, but you don't want to automate processes that can make it easier so you can manage with less people. He's like, exactly. Hmm. And so it's this perfect contradiction where they don't realize that they could actually very well supplement, make people managers of these technologies rather than, rather than users, direct users. They always have the ability to default to becoming we in the military for this is graceful degradation where you can go from an optimal state to a suboptimal state easily because you're, you're trained in all of those effectively. Most of the time that's referred to as like communications. You're going from high bandwidth to low or going from digital to analog. You can do so because you're trained on both. But if you're only trained as a baseline user, it's harder to jump up in technology if you don't have it available to you. You can always default to the easier to, easier form of technology because you, you knew it if you culturally have that built in. And so it, it, there's always that dichotomy and contradiction when it comes to AI. And one of, there's a book, a publication uh, by a guy named, a doctor named, his name is Dr. Robert Spulock, and he wrote for Joint Special Operations University. And it's a, it's a free publication called Innovator Die. And he was talking about innovation in the military. And one of the things that he references in there a lot is, is he's like, the thing that needs to happen with any new technologies, you have to bridge a cultural divide between the end user and the new technology. And that requires... Um, them accepting the culture and changing the culture as well as geographical divide. You literally need to physically be there with the person to walk them through things to make them comfortable with what they're doing rather than just deploying it and saying change. 
because it won't happen that way. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because we actually call this inside of Windward Organizational Change Management, OCM, and we reference it in every one of our proposals because, you know, one of the big reasons why IT projects fail is just, you know, a lack of adoption, right? And um, because humans will go back to their safe space, right? And you may have the greatest idea and be like, we can do all this, but then you've got a thousand users on the system and you're not training them and you're not working with them to adopt these new changes and and working through the preconceptions that they have that that they made up in their mind um, that, you know, these projects are just kind of doomed to fail, right? And really has nothing to do with the technology. It has everything to do with the human condition, right? And what, what humans want to do and what they can do. Um, and how do you work with them to work through that? So so let's, let's shift gears a little bit because um, uh, we, we do a fair amount of work in security operations and you've got a master's, I believe, in cybersecurity. Um, so let's talk about cybersecurity in the AI space. Like, let's get into some of the details on that. So where do you see AI, you know, let's talk about the good and the bad, right? Um, where do you see AI from a technical level really playing a very positive role in cybersecurity? So one of the things that we talked about earlier was, let's say, for example, you have, you have, no one knows your, the internal elements of your ecosystem better than you. And AI, for example, can be used to really identify the vulnerabilities of your network based upon everything it knows about your network. Most of the time when penetration testing is done is individuals come in and they try to identify holes or backdoors or traditional access problems that anybody else would have to, to try to get into your network. Whereas AI could be used to create an efficient model, simulate and synthesize that particular information, and then continually run attacks on its own network to maintain its health and then patch those in real time. So you really have a, the ability to create a malleable network that's constantly adapting to vulnerabilities that it's identifying on its own based on technology that it's identifying open source. That may sound a bit nebulous, but the idea being that imagine if you had thousands and thousands of workers constantly trying to penetrate your network and then every time they found that problem, they would fix it and then go back and attack it again. And that's effectively what an AI model could do is machine learning could effectively constantly be fixing your network like I said, it sounds crazy, but that's really what, what could be happening. And that's kind of what you see with like ChatGPT4 and the way that it adapts to databases and tries to take advantage of things that it's able to pull from the open source. It can learn from things in, that are being spoken about on Reddit and discussed in chat line, the chat rooms, and then employ that and use it to say, okay, I've learned about this new academic process for attacking something. I'm going to try it right now in the synthetic environment and not have it affect the network. And then have a human come in and say, yes, I approve this change and then employ it. Um, those are the kind of things that AI can do from a security standpoint. Those need to be developed in certain respects, but because you have access to open source information, as well as the uh, a really strong understanding of what your own network is, how your network is set up and the protocols you have in place, you can create synthetic environments to do that um, for everything. And that is really where AI is beneficial. Is you, it allows you to scale anything that you are doing a hundred times over and constantly learn from it. Whereas humans, you're you're stuck with a one to one ratio, and you don't have that with AI. So it's very interesting for this podcast. You and I were talking about defensive and offensive use of AI in cybersecurity, and I was asking a lot of questions of, hey, you know, are there ethical ways of using AI offensively in cybersecurity? And that example, I think, is exactly that, right? It's offensive against yourself, right? So it's building an AI and building using AI to build models to continually 
track, you know, to attack your own network so that you can find vulnerabilities. Because the reality is, is that all these bad actors out there, they're deploying AI, right? And they're, they're mm-hmm. doing the same thing. If they're doing things at a hundred times scale than you are, you'll just never be able to keep up with them, right? And the vulnerabilities. Right. And then on a defensive level, using, you know, using AI from, you know, incident response and, and vulnerability management. But I think that's a pretty interesting way of looking at using AI in cybersecurity. And I don't think it's really, if you can crack the code of, you know, using, like you said, chat GDP4, to be able to scan these databases and try things and actually adapt, the ability to then say, okay, I found a vulnerability, let's automatically open up a ticket in ServiceNow, for example, let's classify it at this level type of event, and then it goes into some type of human-based change board they can look at and they say, okay, yeah, that's pretty bad, let's get that done right away. Or they could say, they get declassified down to a certain level and say, let's work on some other things because that's a very low risk. That's really not that hard because I feel like at least from the ticketing application onward and what the work that we do a lot of, that's already built, right? You're now just connecting into the, the, the AI models on the front end that are that are learning and, and attacking. Yeah, it, we have all the pieces in place for it. It's just a matter of whether or not we want to implement any of them. A good friend of mine is a, a penetration tester and he used to, I used to talk to him and be like, who is, who has the best security that you know of? And he's like, well, you know, um, the best I've seen usually were like the quant analysts um, on Wall Street because, and he's like, they would give me user access inside their network and I couldn't get into a lot of things. And and this guy at one point in time, he, I won't say specifically which one, but he took over an entire casino in, La- in Las Vegas because they was hired as a pen tester and it took him 30 minutes and he had access to the game floor. Like this guy was, he's no joke. And, and I was like, what really is the difference a lot of times when you're pen testing? He's like, well, it's about going after the things people aren't expecting and identifying areas that um, are the lowest hanging fruit. And then the human element is another part. So this is something that machine learning, I think, is another interesting element is, is it will work well within one model. And then you try to identify things outside that model. And that's where the humans really come in um, is, is that, that two-sided part. And I think we were talking before about so like humans with AI beating another human. Um, the AI can go so far, but let's say, for example, I can do everything I can to get into your 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 network through the internet. I can't get there, but the only way for me to do it is through physical access. And um, as a pen tester, he used to take his mom, and his mom used to go to these companies that had hired him, and she would show up as a health inspector asking to basically say that she was from the, the state board of whatever and see if they could see the refrigerator and um, because they have employees there and they have food. And then they would go in and she would check out the refrigerator. And then as she walked by, she slipped a thumb drive in a laptop. And that's how they would start gaining access to things. And that's like another aspect of cybersecurity that I never had considered before was like how much the the human aspect of it um, can be manipulated on top of these other aspects. So that really, the combining of AI with humans um, is, is going to be an interesting thing. It'll be even more interesting when the AI starts tasking the human to do that kind of work. Yeah, you brought up something earlier too before the podcast about you know Chat GDP four and and gaining access through you know one of those captcha type things. So can you talk about that because I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, that was brought up at I, I believe though it was the uh, CEO of of OpenAI was talking about South at South by Southwest and discussing all the new capabilities of of GPT four that he is not going to be making available to the public. But one of the examples he gave was they they gave him a prompt and they said, "I need you to get me access and, and get past the one of those recaptcha images that a lot that, that confirms whether or not you're a robot." And GPT four went to a website called TaskRabbit and a, uh, told a person it needed to get access to this website and through a recaptcha. 
And the human said, how do I know you're not a robot? And the robot and the GPT-4 told him, uh, I'm blind and I can't see the screen. So if you could click it for me, then I could get in. And it and the person did. Uh, but GPT-4 was able to assign money, hire this person on TaskRabbit, get them to do the work. And then once they had access, it notified the individual that had access to it. So that was a combination of human. It was the, a, a machine learning algorithm tasking a human to do the work. And uh, that bridge is another element that's going to be very, very, um, that's another aspect that we were dangerous. And you see that with social media manipulation, things like that. And um, those are elements for vulnerable, vulnerable people, as well as vulnerable networks are going to be something that we have to look at from a cybersecurity standpoint. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that we, we talk about a lot, right? So we have, we have, we do a lot of security training inside of Windward and um, we do, you know, we have assignments every month that the, the system applies for us. And a lot of it is around, you know, that human element and where the kind of the last line of defense and how to, how to train our staff on things like physical security. You know, you're at a coffee shop and, and things like that. But, you know, a big part of it is phishing, right? And I, you know, I, I'm trying to imagine, which I probably, I can't, you know, what AI can do and to really elevate the, the whole phishing aspect, right. To a point where it's just going to be really, really hard to, you know, you're going to be tricking humans into, I mean, now you can kind of do things like look at URLs and, and there's all kinds of, you know, do this checklist, you know, did you expect to get it? Is it weirdly worded? You know, does what's the URL, you know, from, but I just feel like, you know, you're going to use, see people deploying AI in ways that are going to make phishing attacks look more and more legit, you know? And yeah, I think a, a good example that I think about a lot is, I really like watching those shows about um, uh, on YouTube about individuals that are like out of those different Indian call centers that are manipulating people and trying to steal their money. Um, those individuals are trained on like a task list and an order and a process, and they are told exactly what to say. There's nothing stopping someone from taking their process and then just putting it into a machine learning algorithm and then implementing it. So that you're not even, you don't even need somebody from a call center and you can give them any accent you want with the voice. And so now you're getting calls that seem legit talking to something that's not even real following a process. It, just like any call center, they, they have the exact same steps they have to follow and they can automate that entire process. The technology exists to do all of that. Yeah, and, it's kind of weird because right? I was online today and I saw uh, something, I think an email came in and it was a... It was an AI generated training program where you could, you can give it a script and you can go online, load your script into it, pick any one of, it looked like about 50 different options of people, like women, men, different, different, you know, ethnics and things like that. And then we would generate a video using your script of the person talking, right? Mm -hmm. Look like a spokesperson. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, in your scenario, I mean, what's to, what's to, do exactly what you're saying. And that's like, let's build a script, let's build a process. And it's adaptable too, right? Using, you know, using AI, the script doesn't need to be really fully baked out. It just needs to start and the Initially, AI can right? actually start. And then, and then here's the thing, they can start grabbing all this information, all the, all the, all the results of this is now coming into a central database and the AI is just getting smarter because they're actually reading in real time, the thousand other sessions going on at the same time about what's working and what's not working, what word is working, what isn't, let's, let's incorporate that. Yeah, that's kind of freaky. Yeah. 
I think another thing that's going to be even what's even freakier is when is when is the fact that each one of these are still going to be following a pattern. So what you do from a defensive standpoint is you implement something that answers those calls and then identifies patterns of predictive speech and then starts running it counter to that to try and defeat it. And if it passes, then it finally is allowed to talk to a human. Hmm. So you could that's it's just it's just counter um, counter machine learning, right? So. There's going to be a point in time in which there, even before we have we interface with something, that these cat and mouse games are played between the different AI algorithms to determine who is more efficient, and uh, it's going to get to a point yeah. where, yeah. So there's layers. There's so many layers, and every single time you develop a new technology, you're going to have to build the, uh, the the defensive element to it, which is going to be based on the same statistical models as the first one, and they're constantly learning from each other. Yeah, it kind of feels like we're in an arms race. <laughs> you know? It is. It's, it is. Uh, it's going to be kind of crazy, like getting, you know, because as these bad actors, you know, are creating things and we're creating more more AI in defense, it's just it's just upping the, the technological advance of AI, you know, just so fast, you know, because the use cases are moving so fast and they're going to be innovating so fast that, I mean, this world maybe look very different three years from now, not... 10 years from now it's going to move quickly a lot of times that sort of thing is event driven something if something major happens to drive it forward or hold it back there's one thing to say that we should stop it another thing is we need to make sure that we understand it well enough and understand the limitations well enough that when we employ it we're doing so ethically and governing that effectively Uh, i was talking to a friend of mine who was recently part of one of those layoffs on facebook and I was asking him about some of the machine learning he was seeing at the company there. And he said, yeah, you know, the stuff that came out recently with OpenAI, as I understand it, that's kind of like the tip of the iceberg of what's capable. It's just being held back by a lot of these companies because they recognize the ethics of it. aren't. They don't understand the limitations yet. So it's, they feel it's unethical for them to deploy it. Wow. So Facebook is actually doing something and that holding something back that isn't that they believe is not ethical. I don't know if I, I don't know if I could say specifically about Facebook, but yeah. I know that with the other companies, I know Google and things like that. Bard, the CEO of Bard was in an interview. Uh, CEO of Google was recently talking about Bard, and he even stated he's like, you know, we know that it's not very good compared to GPT four because we've intentionally put limitations on it because our models break, and when those models break, it starts doing things that are unexpected, and this is where the AI element is is critical is. There are limitations to the capability when all of a sudden it goes from its its binary logic snaps and it just goes to straight zero or it goes into something it just makes up. And so that's why they're limiting the number of, of, of prompts you can give things or the amount of levels of conversation you can have with it because they don't know what decision the AI is going to be making. And um, until they can really, and that that's what they were really saying when there's like these much deeper levels to it because they don't understand that because it makes, it's black boxed in certain respects. Um, they do know to a, a level, a certain level when they when they feed it information. But if you feed something just too much general information and you don't curate it properly, then your outcomes are going to be unknown. And that's where the limitations stop. The nice thing about cybersecurity a lot of times or about certain other faces is you're like, there's only so many number of interfaces you can have and only so many number of things that can take place. And you can control the outcome and the capability more efficiently. It's when you're dealing with something nebulous, like, or no, I keep saying nebulous, but something as um, vague as just human nature that you start finding yourself really running into a lot of not just issues, but a completely different way. You don't know what the limitations are going to be on it. Yeah. It's interesting. John Oliver did it. I don't know if you saw it. John Oliver did a um, thing on AI, a show on AI a couple weeks ago. Where he was marrying cabbages. 
Uh, no, that was that was last season where he was oh, okay. talking about AI generated. This is really the ethics behind AI. Oh, okay. And you brought up something in a term that he said, and that was, you know, AI is very black box right now. We just don't understand what it's doing. So it's very hard to basically say how do we how do we control it when we don't even know what it's doing, right? So you feed something in, it does something, it spits something out on the other end. You really don't understand the methodology in which they did it, right? Yeah. Which that that decision was made, and I think his point was is that you know that needs to we need to understand what this AI is doing, like why it's making decisions and things like that. So all super interesting stuff. Jim, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. This was super interesting. I always like talking about this in real world examples. So thank you very much for coming on. We'll definitely have you back on in the future because uh, I think this stuff's going to be moving fast and I'd love to get your opinions on it. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening. For show notes and links related to everything discussed today, access to archive episodes, and to download the free guide, Nine Ways to Accelerate Your Service Reliability Strategy, head to winward.com. That's W-I-N-D-W-A-R-D.com.